It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Great to have you back with us as I radiate from Las Vegas. We will open with a couple Las Vegas stories. Look at the Raider. He's already smiling about it. Yeah. It's really awesome. We're going to hit lead off with a little bit later in the program, award-winning filmmaker Frederick Taylor swing by, talk about his brand new project connected to his adopted home of Atlanta, as well as many other things. A man loves to talk sports, so we will do just that. Uh, we'll get to a great HB uh uh, historically black college and university story with summer league in a moment. But first, uh, last week, Kirk, the team did it again. Oh, the Raiders. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they hired Las Vegas attorney, Sandra Douglas Morgan, to be the new team president. That's one layer of awesomeness. Right. right. Let's double down on it. She becomes the first black woman to hold that title for an NFL franchise. Before we get more into Ms. Morgan and what she's going to bring to the table, your initial reaction when this news came out as a Raider? Uh, honestly, um, thrilled, excited, yeah. groundbreaking. But then I, I, I sat back and I said, why, why sh- I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I am, I'm, I'm not surprised at, by, at all. Um, I give a lot of credit and and thanks to the great and late Al Davis. Uh, He was an innovator. He, his mind was always forward thinking. And that's the one thing about the history of the organization that I played for, for five years of my NFL career, but grew up in the Oakland, California, you know, Bay area when the Raiders were in Oakland and I was taught and I, I grew up with the Raider history of knowing and hearing some of the names that didn't sound like the regular names of coaches throughout the NFL, names like uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer Tom Flores, who became the first, you know, Mexican American uh, of Latino descent to win a Super Bowl. He's now inducted into the Hall of Fame. He hired the first black coach in the NFL, a guy by the name of Art Shell who actually was my coach for a year back in 2006 with the Raiders. Uh, I'm very close still with one of the, at the time, the highest uh, ranking woman official in the NFL by the name of Amy Trask. This doesn't surprise me because this is part of the heritage of the Raiders organization. This is who they are. They think out of the box. They're not afraid to make uh, decisions that, you know what? there's deserving people who deserve this opportunity. And so you mentioned it when I first saw it, I said, that, that that's the Raiders yeah. in a good way. It wasn't right. a bad way. Like, right. you know what I mean? it was like, for me, I said, you know what, that's, that's who they are. And you give credit to Mark Davis, who's now the uh, you know owner and him thinking, Hey, look, I got a new organization. I'm have an organization that's in a new city. We've been in Vegas for a couple of years now. There's been obviously some 
things going on organizationally in terms of people being in and out and trying to find that right mix. And yet he looked at and took it upon himself, I think, in a group and said, you know what, we need to hire someone who not only represents something that we don't have right now currently, but also knows where we're going and where we need to get to. And that's what I saw with this hire. This was what was huge. And it's just the beginning. Uh, I think the NFL is going to see more of this, not even because it, it and I, I don't want this to be something in which Jack's people just check off boxes. Like, mm-hmm. oh, they hired a woman. They hired a black woman. No, I, I think that this role serve two purposes not only is it the first african-american black woman to hold this position but also it's a woman holding a high-ranking official in the national football league you know jackson i was on the sidelines warming up when i was in the nfl i always would look at man who's the black guy in the suit (laughs) really because brothers wear suits on the sideline hey you do something you you ain't somebody you want to know (laughs) somebody i need to know so you knew that he was, uh, you know, part of the NFL in some sort of way and an owner, things like that. But now you have a woman who will be on that sideline walking down that field that holds a, a, a just a position in the National Football League that holds a lot of weight. So I give credit to, uh, like, again, the organization for hiring her. And now you have her as a president. And you also have our guy, Jason Wright, who's the president of the Washington Commanders. So two African-American people, two black people in high positions in the National Football League. And I know there's still many more who are, I think, much, much deserved to be in that same position as well. There's another layer to this that I think is super important, particularly when you're carpetbagging, when, you, <laughs> when you're interloping, when you yeah. find yourself in your third home uh, in, your, in your team history. Yeah. cementing themselves in Vegas. Yes. Sandra Morgan Douglas was born in Las Vegas. She comes to the Raiders after serving as the chair and executive director of the gaming board in right. Las Vegas. Is there a more coveted mm-hmm. uh, commission than that in this town? Um, she's also served as the director of external affairs for AT&T in Southern Nevada. We're talking somebody who knows where everything is. And you know, in Las yeah. Vegas, you better know. <laughs> you better know. Where everything is. <laughs> uh, to to really lock yourself in. I had a chance to go to that beautiful uh, new uh, facility uh, while my in my stay here for Summer League. Yeah. And it's staggering. Now, people say it doesn't have that, it doesn't have that Oakland edge in there. It's <laughs> it a little more foo-foo <laughs> yeah. uh, Raider style. Uh, but understanding where you are and your new fan base from a local standpoint uh, and how you monetize that from the inside out is something this, I imagine, is the back of Ms. Morgan's hand. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned it. It's not about where you're at now. It's where we're going and where we're heading. And I think that's uh, the big part that lies within her being appointed there. And also, too, being able to have her undergrad degree and graduate degree from University of Nevada, Reno, and UNLV. So she is entrenched in the state of Nevada. And I think it's someone who can give, I think, the owner, Mark Davis, great direction when you're talking about where we can move, where this organization is heading into this next you know, era of NFL football, but also just world football. This is a, I've always said the Raiders are a worldwide brand. This isn't a U.S. brand. This is a global brand. When you see that patch, you know what it means. Trust me. <laughs> it's about the Raiders. Come on now. 
<laughs> Absolutely. As I noted, I'm in Las Vegas. As we tape this, day eight of 12. Yes. Uh, as I am here. Almost uh, home. You're almost home, brother. Connected <laughs> with Summer League. Yeah. Uh, the Miami Heat, of which I'm the radio play-by-play announcer and television host for, decided that they wanted original radio broadcasts of all five Summer League games for the first time in team history. And while it is a long stretch, it's uh, the, the deepest and, and, and more connective vibe that I've had, particularly with our teams, right. uh, young players that are you know, just getting to the league or trying to break through. And it's been fantastic. And it's also been great to see the continued connection that the NBA continues to hold on to, making it a, just a part of their DNA to create a platform of significance for players from HBCUs. A uh, couple of my son's teammates from FAMU uh, <laughs> and, and a few dozen players, a couple dozen players, uh, in place to have their own showcase uh, that they regularly wouldn't have with NBA royalty here. Kirk, that's the thing. Yeah. This isn't just a, hey, let's have the right optics and continue what we've been doing for the last two years as a league. It's, no, no, you know what? Because of the the mid to low tier of Division One that many HBCUs find themselves in, if not in a whole different uh, designation from a governance standpoint for sports, uh, the majority of scouts and decision makers simply just don't get to those games. Yeah. And so let's bring those players to us and let them have a full assessment with every decision maker in the league in the house. I think it's a tip of the cap to the NBA for sure, because I remember when summer league was, you know, I've had buddies of mine that I graduated from college with, and I remember they played in summer league and summer league was in long beach one year and it was in, somewhere else but it was really spread out it wasn't what it is now i mean summer league is a real thing and we're looking at the crowds that came out to watch basketball in the summer um it's been to me it's been fun to watch i've watched every night so i'm looking at some of the new players the young players from today or for of yesterday or tomorrow i should say sure. that, that we'll be watching and then i'm seeing like to your point it's a who's who you know watching the other day, you know, like I said we're taping this, but watching the the Lakers and Clippers play in a uh, summer league game, but watching Jer- seeing Jerry West and Lawrence Frank and uh, seeing Ty Lue and Rob Palenka, and I'm like, oh, so these are the decision makers that are in there. We're talking about high level basketball IQ guys all around the league, GMs, executives. I mentioned uh, Trajan Langdon's another young guy who's, I call him a young guy, but, you know, guys who have this experience of playing and now are in, you know, executive roles, but they're all there. And why not have a showcase that gives guys that opportunity just to be seen? You mentioned it. Not a lot of people are going to be able to go to those games. I know guys who are NFL scouts and tell me, hey, we can't go to every game, but man, a showcase helps us out. Because now we have guys who are on the radar. Now we have measurables. Now we've seen them for the first time. We've talked to them. We've had in, uh, involuntary interviews, so to speak, you know, and those go a long way. And I, again, kudos to the NBA. Now I did see something else. And I hopefully I'm not throwing this on you on the spot here, but a buddy of mine, uh, Rosh Markazi, he's uh, you know Southern California. We used to write for um, ESPN talked about i think the next step for the nba and summer league 
I thought it was a great idea is why not also have the WNBA All-Star Weekend centered around NBA Summer League? So now we're talking yeah, about coincide timeline yeah. so on the timeline, right? So now you're talking about having the HBCU uh, showcase. Now you're having the WNBA All Star Weekend, and oh, by the way, you have this uh, stretch of days of games of the NBA Summer League because we've seen it. Everybody's there, right? We've from LeBron, we've seen Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, Damian Lillard. Uh, I mean, you name it, that person is there right in the NBA. Right. So why not just turn this thing into a big giant function uh, extravaganza of two weeks of celebration of the NBA right. that gives everybody a seat, right? HBCU gets a seat. The WNBA will get a seat. And also the young players who, quite frankly, we know, what would you say, Jax, maybe 70% we may not, we may not see on this right. stage like this again so i think it gives i think it's a home run for everybody and it's continue um some continued success i think the nba will have if they really put all that together because i know that i'm i'm watching every day so ain't nothing else on yeah. trust me <laughs> i think the whole, first of all it's a great idea yeah. I, I think the only struggle would be that there are those ownership groups that like to showcase their city and their arena so to maintain a constant aces uh opportunity <laughs> to do that yeah. uh would be great for them um it, it would probably get some pushback from from some other cities that at least want to bring it the challenge with all-star uh that i don't you know obviously fans don't don't know and shouldn't know is the pressure that it puts on the host organization is immense Right. And you're putting in a lot of resources and the league is taking all the dividends. And so hey, it should be not, a teamwork. Not, every, teamwork. not everybody wants to, to have to endure that. But I know, you know, and particularly in the WNBA, I would think. Um, and, th and there's a greater feeling like letting the economics go away because stuff comes in, obviously. Correct. Um, particularly to the cities overall. Um, that there would just want to be a variety of opportunity. To showcase it but i will say this when it rotates through vegas it should be a big it should be yeah. an explosion i'm with you with that um one last note on the the hbcu showcase the really cool thing that i loved uh is that with uh, the players i think it's 28 in all that were invited uh and the scouts uh that were in the stands to watch them i love that it was four former nba players that were coaching and giving these young men the real critical DNA particles that they need as they're going to take the next step. And uh, this inaugural um, HBCU showcase, I think, is something that it's going to be neat to see what are the derivatives of it. The players right. that actually, you know, get themselves a G League opportunity or a two-way opportunity. Yeah, I think, yeah. You know, it's not everybody's going to make the NBA, but – you know, you want to see a success story there. Uh, you mentioned a contract there. Who knows? Just more eyeballs and even have that on your resume as well. I know that can also help out guys if they plan to continue uh, playing in the States or even overseas. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we dive inside the depths of sports and it's many different facets uh, as it pertains to the film industry. 
and the overall business of sports. We have uh, the award winning, the uh, Emmy award winning, let's just call what it is, yeah. filmmaker Frederick Taylor next on the program. Uh, he was with us, uh, I believe, last spring. So, so refreshing to talk to this man about his craft and how it aligns with ours. And we'll do that as Forward Progress continues in a moment. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. It is an absolute pleasure to have back with us once again Emmy Award winning filmmaker Frederick Taylor. Frederick, uh, native of uh, the south side of Chicago, pride of Temple, and a man <laughs> who loves to talk about sports Absolutely. and with a real impact on society. And it's so great. Frederick, to have you back on the program. Uh, we've, we've covered some good stuff off there. We're going to have to pull some of that stuff on there uh, as we continue our conversation <laughs> today. Uh, but for you, and, and this is the challenge people have been on me about not watching um, Hustle. And I just struggle with sports movies. And, it, mm-hmm. and, and for me, and, and this is probably not the problem with Hustle, is that I want the action to look like real life action all the time. And that's got to be hard to execute in film. That can't be the most important thing, but it's got to be up there. What makes a good sports movie? Well, many things make a good sports movie. And, you know, one of the things is, is that our literacy of sports is varies. Now there are people that have played, they know, there are people that are watched and they love looking at it. And then there's two types of watching. There's watching live and then there's watching on TV. And as far as the stellar camera work, that's all new. That's very 2000 cheeky stuff. You know, they didn't have the wire cams on Monday Night Football growing up as kids. <laughs> it was pretty static and like five or six cameras and switching. And that was about it. So it wasn't as dynamic. So therefore, when you were making sports films back in the day, you could get away with more because there wasn't as much visual literacy there. Now, real time live sports is way better produced than movie sports. And I tell people all the time that want to shoot sports movies. I'm like, you got to shoot it like they do in TV. You know, you got to get the wire cams. You got to get the steady cams. You got to get in there. You know, because so much of live television with sports, they are in there. They're a part of it. You know, it's that tracking shot, you know, that you see Mm -hmm. on like uh, like punt returns and stuff like that. And that that tracking shot, they they developed that from back in the Olympics. They used to do that tracking shot on all the sprints and stuff like that. So now they do that same shot. So if you're, you're making a movie and you've got a scene where a running back breaks into the open and is heading to the end zone, you better have a tracking shot. It better be dynamic and kinetic. So, yeah, I, I do think you need that stuff. But some of the other elements that make, you know, uh, movies great that are uh, involved in sports is the journey and the story and the classic phrase, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat as well and it's about the characters and how they take the l it's the characters and their ability to act like they've been there before and all of the humility that goes along with sports as well you know i mean i don't know 
you know, if you guys can remember growing up as kids, those games, those tough games, you would lose at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And you're just yeah. so involved emotionally. And there was always a kid in the dugout crying and stuff like that. Like, you know, you got to get into those sort of points of interest. And one of the other things, and I thought about this too, before coming on with you guys, was that it's got to be inclusive. Like, okay, I don't like the movie Hoosiers. And I'm like, but I like basketball, but I don't like the movie Hoosiers. Why is that? Well, because it kind of favors one particular cultural group playing basketball when it's like, you can't do that. You know, basketball is a diverse sport. And so I like it within the context of diversity as as well. You know, if you said, hey, you want to watch a league of their own or you want to watch Hoosiers, I would pick a league of their own because it, it actually is bringing some level of gender diversity to the mix. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, that's kind of cool. Now, a good sports movie that I do like is the first Rocky film which is pretty cool to me. The first one after that, it gets a little weird, but the the first one I think is very, very good. And it really brings up or just states that, you know, the seventies in the, in the heavyweight game, which was really cool era for boxing is as well. And, you know, Stallone really mimicked a lot of Frazier, that run that he does and he's up on the steps and all that stuff. Frazier did that run. He got that from Joe Frazier and even that Rocky Balboa, like, you know, peekaboo style, that's Frazier. So essentially Rocky is Ali Frazier. They just swap out one of the people of color for an Italian guy, you know, (laughs) and that becomes, I know, and that becomes Hollywood history. There's a great moment at the Oscars in the 70s where Stallone's out on stage and Ali comes in behind him. And Ali whispers in his ear, and you can see his mouth moving. He goes, "You stole my movie." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and he, and like, what's Stallone going to say? Except, yeah, I did. I really totally stole your movie. You know, and Creed's great. You know, that character Creed's great. Uh, and then Carl Weathers, who's, sure. who's a former football player, is as well. And that was fantastic as uh, as well. And that's a very electric and kinetic movie. Um, Scorsese's take on Raging Bull, I thought, was uh, a, a pretty good sports movie. Um, as as well and there's some of the modern ones are a little bit better like I do like remember the titans because it's got some socio-political aspects to it as as well and there is something exhilarating about watching a black coach I got to admit like I get excited you know black coaches are my Newt Rockneys you you know I'm always cheering for them and I want them to be able to lead and rally the troops together and all that other stuff. So I find that to be pretty uh, engaging uh, as, as well. Um, I love Jerry Maguire. Um, and my favorite scene in Jerry Maguire is when Cuba Gooding Jr. is on the phone with Tom Cruise and he's making him say, I love the black man. And he's like, and Cuba's <laughs> like, I can't hear you. What was that? <laughs> I love the black Three man. Minutes. You know, and you see that relationship between these agents that are coming into another community to harvest these players and make millions off of them. And, and, and that, that gets me too. So it's the journey, it's the politics, it's all of this other stimulating stuff around it that gets me all fired up and juiced up to watch these films as well. So if you can't have all of the kinetic dynamic sports 
moments visually at least give me some of that juicy storyline and the behind the scenes politics and and stuff like that because sports is race and race is sports it, it's, it's completely and totally obvious and for anybody that's going to deny that they are not looking at this with their eyes open is there something or is there any value that comes from uh, having uh, professional athletes participate in these films either as a fictitious character or themselves that add some level of authenticity. And I, I'll say that with an asterisk, mm-hmm. if they've worked on their acting chops, just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, if they've worked on their acting chops, there's no yeah. question about it. It, it, crea- it gr- creates a greater gravitational force for the film. If they can come in and bring something to the mix, because that authentic- authenticity is essential. And I think especially when you're talking about some of these athletes that are um, come from, you know, communities of color as well, because we don't have the opportunity to see how these men and women are portrayed. Um, And that's very new because so many sports movies for such a long time were centralized in one particular culture. You know, the idea of having authenticity with a, uh, smorgasbord of people and cultures is is fascinating yeah if we could get Shohei Atani to come in and be in a movie and play you know uh, a, a Japanese pitcher you know emigrating to America to be in the major leagues that would be great I mean he's the natural if you're going to remake the natural you, you gotta you gotta see if you could get Shohei in there to play the role and if he could play the role that's a home run, man. You make money all day long on that kind of stuff. So absolutely, you know, so I'm all for uh, athletes getting some good old fashioned acting training. Um, it really can can help. I just watched again, uh, Jane, Jim Brown in the Dirty Dozen, <laughs> which he's great in it. And he's because you're, you're talking about a late 60s movie. Right. Yeah. And he's telling everybody else to shut up. He's telling Charles Bronson, take a seat. Hey, Donald Sutherland, get out of my way, man. That's powerful stuff. I'm thinking like 68, he's talking to these people like that on screen in a movie, you know, and then he sacrifices himself at the end, you know, to save the rest of them. And they give him this one shot, the Jim Brown move, and he's like running and dodging bullets at the same time. And, you know, and he's still that virile guy that we all know from all the football newsreel films and stuff like that. And I'm like, it's, that was powerful. That was cool. So yeah, when you can get them in there, put them in, you know, it just makes it more dynamic with all due respect to great actors, but great actors don't make great athletes, but a great athlete can, can be a serviceable um, actor, you know, the rocks done it, you know, he was yeah. an okay football player and turned into a huge entity as a wrestler. And he's turned into a pretty good actor. I, you know, I don't mind watching rock the rock on, on screen. I just wish they could give him some things a little bit meatier, but, <laughs> right. but he's making that money. So I can't be that's, mad at him. Yeah. So. Frederick, you gotta understand. Remember I, I watched Moana the other day with my daughter. So yes, yes he is uh, his performance as Maui still is something that, uh, uh, sends raves throughout my household. But I know one question I did want to ask you, and, and this is something that I've been kind of wrestling with right. in terms of when you talk sports movies, sure, is it more captivating to tell or I guess follow one person or a single 
person or is it about a team achievement? What do you think is more captivating? Because we can say, hey, the Jim Brown story, but then you mentioned, you know, what about the Texas Southern basketball team? You know what I mean? Like it's just certain things that we gravitate to team success or is it the rise of one person who had success? It's like you look into the, the constellation and you'll see a cluster of stars and it looks really beautiful. And then you'll see this one star that's shining brighter than all of the other stars. And you're still sort of oddly drawn to it. Like recently, the whole uh, telescope phenomena that's gone on in the past couple of days, you know, you see that cluster and then there's like a couple of stars that are shining brighter. And you're like, well, what is that? On a singular level, you want to know more about them. And there are other clusters that are more interesting as a group. As much as I love Venus, I still, there's a complexity with Serena that I want to be able to explore on a very deep and profound level as well. You know, Jordan is that kind of player, much about a movie about LeBron, but I care about the ecosystem that LeBron's created and these teams that he's been on. Like I would love a movie about his Miami days or his early days in Cleveland and being frustrated. LeBron's more interesting in that, that cluster of team play. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I would love to watch a film about LeBron um, and the teams that he's been on, his high school team, when he first got to Cleveland, when he went to Miami, when they came back down 3-1 to the Warriors and they won, and it was basically him and a bunch of clowns. <laughs> you know, like that's that's amazing. You know, like that's mm-hmm. his ability to make others around him better. I think ultimately is his legacy. And we just don't value that as much. We don't think about that context. Like, you know, different dynamic, you know, but, you know, Jordan is the one that's perceived so individually great. He made a lot of other careers around him. I mean, a lot of dudes made a lot of money simply by being on a team with him, which I found to be fascinating as as well. So the LeBron's more the team oriented answer. And then Jordan's more the singular person it just depends on the individual you know you know and i i think that certain athletes are stars you know they are transcendent stars and they will be their gods to us like you know julius irving's a god to me you know i i met him once as a kid and i was working in a movie theater and i let him out the back door of a movie theater so no one would see him he came to see predator on opening night and then i never saw him again until Decades later, I'm walking around in Atlanta and he walks out of a club that I'm walking into and it's him again. And I had the same feeling that I had as a child. He's a star. Do you know what I mean? You know, so I don't when I think about the Sixers, I never think about Caldwell Jones. (laughs) You know, I only think about Julius Irving, you know, and that's the that that's the that's the difference. And so it just depends on depends on the athlete. You know, Barry Bonds is someone in and of himself, Right. you know, whether you love him or hate him. I mean, singularly, I mean, to, in my lifetime, the greatest hitter I ever saw. You know, I've never saw anybody throw a fastball past Barry Bonds. Just it, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so the guy could hit in spite of what anybody can say about anything else that they think that he did. The guy can hit. <laughs> right. You know, so there you there there you have it um and he'd still be playing now if they would have they would have <laughs> left that's how good Barry Bonds was he'd still be playing he'd be a 50 something year old man hitting like 15 home runs a year 
Like that's how that's how good he was as a player. Satchel Page, singularly just unbelievable. You know, one of my other favorite sports films of all time is the Bingo Long Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings. And I will fight you in a parking lot over that movie. I love that movie <laughs> without question. And it's an ensemble movie. Billy Dee Williams, you know, Richard Pryor, James Earl Jones. Come on, man. Like, it's a baseball movie and they're barnstorming team. Yeah. Man, that's everything, you know? So, so we're going to take a quick, we're going to take a quick break. We're not letting you go anywhere. <laughs> We're just going to come back and keep this lovely conversation going. It's Frederick Taylor, the award-winning filmmaker, along with Kirk Morrison, Jason Jackson here on Forward Progress. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about where the women go next in this magical world of sports. And really probably the, the deepest of all our topics today, the real one, the cash and its association in all of this. Uh, uh -oh. That and more when we come back on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Thanks for hanging with us. We still have with us, and thank, thank you for his time, Frederick Taylor, the fantastic filmmaker, uh, resonating from the south side of Chicago originally, uh, exploding out of Temple as uh, one of the young greats, and now just slamming it down. We'll talk about uh, his newest project coming up in just a little bit, uh, but we just love talking sports with you. Uh, and... And this is the best sports show on. Seriously, <laughs> I really think so. You will get no call from the two of us. Okay. On that assessment, my man. Um, the depth of where we want to go with this next topic is endless. Because yes. the reason why we get to have this show, why there is uh, a sports platform throughout SiriusXM, why we sit around and look at billions of dollars flying around for not just the purchase of teams, but for the platform uh, to spread the, the images around the world of these competitions across the board. Uh, so trying to get in the very simplistic phrase and the complicated reality of socioeconomic power and sports goes in so many directions because we're talking about the governance of teams, we're talking about the running of leagues, and we're still talking about people having access to the product live, which is getting out of the hands of people rapidly. Right. Absolutely. I would add on to that ownership yeah. as, as, as well. Um, you know, I've just moved terminology to governorship. <laughs> governorship. That's a good one. I like, I, yeah. I, I like that. Um, autonomy yeah. is, is, is another, you know, skin in the game, a place at the table, all this other stuff that um, sports is not servitude. In the past, we've perceived it as that. Initially, it was developed like that. We read all those books about all those crazy old owners from back in the day and the way they just like took all the money. And mm -hmm. that's just not going down anymore. You know, thank you, Kurt Flood, for those of us that know the history of that. And that, to my point, is that it's in so many spaces, these transcendent uh, people of color and people from marginalized communities have gone into sports and just kicked these doors open for the future, you know, generations to be able to thrive off of as, as, as well. And that does move over into the, the gender space. So we, that, we talk about the gender space and I'm trying to, you mentioned a little bit earlier, yes. 
kind of yeah. kind of sneakily about the Venus and Serena Williams story. And we just you know, had the movie that we saw that just came out recently. Right. But I feel like there is other stories that we can now start to gravitate to when sure. it comes to women and people sure. want to see those stories. Yes. What for you is that next story outside of probably the obvious ones of Venus and Serena? Who's that next one that you think we need to hear this story and we need to hear it now, especially with so much movement uh, with women right now and what's going on with some of these different laws and things that have been passed through our government? Um, the big one would be, in my opinion, obviously the uh, female national soccer team. Okay. which is they're better than the men. Okay. Like the bottom, yeah. they're better than the men. Let's just be <laughs> real with this. They win. Yeah. The men don't win. Okay. <laughs> and the women go out and do things like win the world cup. Okay. Right. Like they're the, the best female soccer team on the planet earth. The men are the worst. Male <laughs> soccer team on the planet earth. That's the real, I mean, we could do battle of the sexes. I mean, come on, man. If you had a, an event where it was the men's national team versus the women's national team, Dude, everybody would line up for that. We'd all be watching that. That would be crazy. And we would be like, we'd be cheering for these ladies to, to go ahead and knock these dudes off. You know, um, that's where we are. But they aren't paid equal. You know, they stay in three-star hotels. The guys stay in five-star hotels. You know, they make all of the television revenue and the powers that be keep it. The men don't make any television revenue because no one's watching because everybody knows that they're going to lose, you know, but the men still get paid better. Now, they had to litigate that to try to balance those scales a little bit more because it just was very bad optics, similar to the bad optics of post-World War II, you know, and the um, sort of Hitler-esque hangover that we had after World War II that like, hey, you can't ask these, these brothers to go fight and die for you, and then they can't play sports. And so that's no strange coincidence. By 1947, here comes Jackie Robinson and the, you know, and the walls start tumbling down, that the, the society just gets to a point that says no more. And I think that's where we are with the women's national soccer team. And I think that's good. And I think that makes a great story. Now here's a small story. It's the young lady that was at um in, in Texas, in, not in Texas, I'm sorry, Nashville at Vanderbilt, who was the place kicker. And everybody kept making a big deal about that. And I thought that that was pretty cool as well. She was coming out and, you know, kicking extra points. And I yeah. thought that was a very interesting dynamic. And she showed that, hey, I can get out there and I can kick extra points. And I'm like, okay, get out there and kick some extra points. And I think that's a good story because people are sitting around, you know, they're all angry and they're debating like, oh, can a mm. woman kick a 35 yard <laughs> field goal? I mean, the answer is yes. Yeah. And can do it very well and consistent and consistently, you know, as, as well, you know, and then someone was saying, well, you know, if things go bad or there's a fumble, she's not going to be able to tackle. I said, show me one place kicker ever in the history of football that could <laughs> make an open field tackle. <laughs> right. I mean, come on, really? Mm. There, no, it doesn't happen. You know, so it doesn't. That doesn't matter. That's not their job. You know, so I think that's interesting uh, as as well as a, an example of a small film. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have yeah. to be a big money, big budget film. It could just be a little film about a a, a young lady who's a great kicker who, who just wants to kick on her 
football team and everybody's telling her no. And then she finds a way onto the field and then she kicks the, the winning field goal that saves the season or wins them the state championship or something like that. And there you have another feel good movie as well. And maybe she does make that open field tackle. <laughs> <laughs> the last time we were together, Frederick Taylor with us here on forward progress. Last time we were together, we were talking about your uh, new project uh, counter histories. Uh, yes. The, Rock Hill. This is the story of the Friendship Nine and the torment they went through and just trying to sit in and have uh, a place at the lunch counter. It turned into obviously uh, the Freedom Rides and, and, and moving us closer to civil rights here in America in such a uh, violent and bloody way. But what a wonderful story. Uh, and we appreciate you telling it. What uh, is next up on the docket now that we got you here uh, that you already have on the street or, or that you're working on? Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, the Friendship Nine counter histories thing was something that, you know, came out of, you know, our own cultural history. And so much of that message is transferable to others because we all come from something and we all come from backgrounds that are challenging. And so there's a formula in there that I've discovered that now it, I'm able to relate into other cultures. So another project that I just finished up, it's called Together ATL. And it's all about cultural unity and awareness in Atlanta. And it's about kids of all these different backgrounds coming together, singing and dancing and trying to make a better tomorrow for us in Atlanta. And that was a gig that I got because of my level of aptitude in this world of telling stories within the realm of awareness as well. So it's turning into a, a business venture uh, as, as well, which is very exciting. That's also at the same time assisting and, and helping people too. So that's one of the things immediately that I'm happy about. Um, it's with the uh, Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta as well. Our mayor in Atlanta has signed off on it too. He loves it. He's actually in the video too with the kids. Um, and so that's an example of how you can create these things and then they can become a part of the conversation at large with uh, general culture as, as well. Um, I think it's really important for people to appreciate the experiences of African-Americans because they need African-Americans in order to find their true self as well. You know, there's a lot that African-Americans have to offer this country as far as the narrative of sustainability is concerned, overcoming obstacles is concerned, you know, being able to have peaceful protests and being able to stand up for what you believe in as well, and the tenets of this constitution and what life is really all about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when I think of those concepts, I think of African-Americans all the time, all the people that I admire that are African-American, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They're all about that stuff. And they'll tell you that all day long as they're grilling in their backyard, <laughs> giving you a burger, you know, yeah. that's who, that's who they are. And, you know, I don't think there's anything more American honestly, in my opinion, than African-Americans, you know, that, that's how I see it. That's how I, I, I feel that. And I just try to disperse that into other cultures. I just got asked to, um, I'm going to do a film about um, Asian-American immigrants to uh, Atlanta as well, the Burmese community. And I'm not Asian, but they want me to tell their story. Why? 
because I'm good at telling stories about people that come from marginalized communities that want to be a part of the big picture. I believe in that wholeheartedly, and I'll I'll fight you in a parking lot over it. I, I, I believe in what this country can really be if given the opportunity for everyone, you know, and I won't get off that with, with, with people. And a lot of other communities are starting to, to see that value, you know, yeah. in, in, in what I'm really all about. Yeah, you touched on my last question for you, Frederick, is that with the success that you've had, is it to a point now where do you still go out and seek the inspiration on a project or does the inspiration now come and find you on a project? It's flow. It goes both ways. You know, it's like you will use a sports metaphor again, you know, you're running the point and everybody is doing their thing and they're doing their job and you, you, you can see everything in front of you. And now you've got eyes in the back of your head. And like suddenly you're Magic Johnson and you're controlling the flow of the game. You're, it's, it's Jordan-esque mm. is what happens is that you can attack or you know that you can pull up or you know that you can attack and go to the goal or you can attack and distribute as well because you know where people are going to be and everybody's doing their jobs. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. There are things that come to me now right. through just this pure flow and then there's an energy that I create by activating myself as well. So it goes, it, it goes both ways. And that's very, that, that's, that's very exciting. So I don't feel stagnant because you meet a lot of people that are in this business and like, yo, man, I'm trying to like get, a, get in this business. And I'm trying to get to the next level. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Right. So they're just kind of holding the ball. <laughs> you know, and don't hold the ball. Pass the ball. Pass Just the ball. Keep, the ball yeah. keep moving. Keep moving. Pass the ball and move. Don't stand in the same spot and don't hold the ball. If you can do that, that will ensure that eventually you're going to be somewhere near the basket. Someone's going to pass you the ball and you're going to be able to score. That's what people forget. Don't hold the ball and stand in one spot. Like and that. a lot of people make that uh, mistake. Um, you know, a, a lot of artists do in this business, whether you're talking film or music or, or whatever, you see it a lot in hip hop with all due respect to hip hop. You see a certain number of these artists and they kind of get mm -hmm. there and then they're like, Oh, what do I do? I don't know what to do. What's the next oh, thing yeah. I should do? You know, and they get stuck and then they're done. Yeah. See, you, man, you opened up a whole can of worms. I know we got to let you go, but now you, you talking about Drake and Beyonce new albums, man. See, they, they, they passed the ball. It's now a whole different genre of music that they have now. And people are like up in arms. Say, hey, we, we want what you used to do. I said, no, we passing the rock now. We want to do something different. So I, I hear what you're saying, brother. Appreciate that. Pass, pass the rock. Frederick Taylor, award-winning filmmaker, kind enough to double dip, I think, in our soon-to-be three seasons of uh, Home in Progress. It is a first. A, mm -hmm. a two-segment holdover, but the man's always got great stuff for us. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for giving us so much time. You got it. See you guys. Right. That being said, <laughs> that's going to do it for this edition of the program. Thanks again to Frederick Taylor for spending the time for our, our illustrious producer, Cornell Brown. My partner, Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress.